On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Are you registered to vote? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org, where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for Election Day. Headcount tours with musicians to help concert attendees register to vote, but you don't need to leave your house to register or to get voting info. Register to vote by visiting headcount.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mixtape Memories. Memories. I'm Jenners. And I'm Matt Hart Spade. And we're here with Saida Blount. Today, Hi our there. special guest. <laughs> Woo! She's the Senior Manager of Global Content Marketing at Sonos. Sounds so official. And... It's too much. <laughs> <laughs> and formerly, NPR Music's Live Events and Digital Content Manager. Yeah! Thanks for being here. This is the best. I'm really, really excited. Thanks for having me. It's so interesting, like, to have like seen what you've been doing and your various roles over the years, and um, it's like nice to see somebody with like such a point of view, you know? Oh, nice. Thank you. That's that's really awesome to hear. I mean, I kind of feel like the exact opposite. I feel like, <laughs> or maybe it's all those people that work behind the scenes, and you're kind of like. You feel like you're slogging it to the finish line all the time. <laughs> like, um, I, you know, when I work on music projects, I am behind the scenes, but half of the time I'm just like in, in various like versions of myself. I was like, just get them on the stage, get them on the stage. That's all you want to do. <laughs> like, you just want it. You're looking towards the end, but you're like, just get on stage. So <laughs> I, appre- I appreciate the time behind the curtain. Yeah. Good. That's fair. <laughs> when did your love of music kind of get started? Like, what's your earliest music memory? And do you have particular mixtape memories from way back? Yeah, you know, the absolute earliest is dancing around the living room with my mom. Um, my, you know, I, I don't know if it's just the patriarchy maybe put that idea in our head, but I always assumed that I got my music taste from my dad. Like, my dad was a big record collector. He loved music. But in a weird sort of way, I didn't know that my mom loved music as much as my dad did. And so come to find out, I mean, those those memories are pretty dead on. Like my I just remember like my mom, like holding both of my hands and like dancing me around the living room to different songs. And I always remember like my mom loved ABBA and my mom like (laughs) loved Wings. And there were just certain artists that she loved. She would put on and just. We would just dance around and I, I remember that and then on the other end as I got a little bit older um, my dad would go record shopping um, I grew up in Kansas City and you know they at one time had like dozens upon dozens of record stores and like they had a record store district and it was a big like record fanatic 
kind of a great place to grow up if you love vinyl. And so my dad always had like vinyl days, like hunting days. And I remember him bringing over like a crate and like sliding it next to where he was digging to let me like peek up and see what he was doing. So, I mean, it was just all around me from a very early age. What is it with Kansas City and like people with good taste in music? Because <laughs> I feel like I know so many. You know, honestly, I, people don't believe me um, that, you know, we had um, very early on, and you know, they touched upon this in the, I don't know if you guys watched the country music documentary, Ken Burns's um, documentary, that Kansas no. City ended up being a prime radio market really early because there was all that land to put the towers there. And so there are these huge mega megawatt towers and so disc jockeys just popped up. Like, radio culture in Kansas City was very real. Even growing up, I felt like the stations were better in Kansas City than they are here in New York City. I moved here, and I was like, what is this? There's, like, one classic rock station, one of this. Like, um, where I grew up, it was, like, multiple of everything. We would get stuff also from Lawrence, which was 45 minutes outside of Kansas City, one of the like 70,000 college students and a couple of the best record, um, excuse me, college radio stations in the country. People love radio in the Midwest. Like it's, and you still, drive time is real. So we were born listening to music all the time. That's true. You're driving culture. You're always mm -hmm. like listening to radio, listening to something. Now yeah. it's like maybe a podcast, but. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, that's real. <laughs> What kind of stations would you listen to or would be kind of a mix of all sorts of things? It was everything. You know, my parents, um, we didn't have like a cassette deck in the car for a long time. Mm -hmm. It was just the radio, I remember. And so it was all across the board. Like my parents would flip and it would go from classic rock to an R&B station to um, classical to PB or excuse me, NPR. Like, I was an NPR kid. I grew up, like, being in the backseat and, like, strapped in. And my parents listened. And, of course, you're a kid. You're like, oh, who's this just talking? But you <laughs> wanted to hear the music. But um, I also remember just driving around. With my I'm the youngest of all of my cousins. And I remember driving around with my cousins. And it was just listening to music. Like, that was what kids did. You cruised. And you mm -hmm. listen to music and like, you know, they were probably babysitting and cruising at the same time, what they're not <laughs> supposed to do. And we were just listening to music. So I remember just hearing across all genres all the time. That's, That's cool. nice. Because um, you study, you actually like studied political science, right? In yeah. College. And then uh, I was reading that you were working with your college radio station and is that kind of how you started to feel like you could work in the industry? It was. You know, um, my, the one thing is my parents were very strict. Like, they were all about academics all the time. Like, there wasn't, um, you know, it was nice to do on your own. But when it came to college and I was like, there was a moment where I was like, I feel like I might want to be an art major or a, a music major. My parents were like, shut it down. It's not happening. <laughs> They're like, you're going to have a job where you're like, you're going to get a, a degree where you can get a job afterwards. And I was like, fair play. And so like, that was kind of, again, a moment where I was like, this is my thing to do outside of academics, working on college radio. But I think it really did give me a teaser moment of like, ooh, this could be really awesome to work in. Um, 
one year the uh, the station sent us to CMJ, um, the College Music Journal Festival, and that was my also my first time coming to New York. It was a it blew my mind. Just I'd never seen anything like that. Like the largest shows I'd ever been to, just tons of music fans around and. Again, I think it planted that kernel that I was like, ooh, this might be competing against what I always thought I was going to do. Now, I was just going to say, I just want to say out loud that you have such a great radio voice and radio personality. Like, your vibe is perfect for radio, I think. It's, you know, NPR is a great learning ground for that. Like, <laughs> you definitely get taught a radio voice. Like, you know, they're very cool about, um, they don't want people to lose their personality. Like, they don't want... Like, if somebody does have a total, like, an inflection or something that's very true to them, they're not going to beat that out of you. But there's definitely things, like, they tell you where to pause. And, like, obviously, like, with your punctuation, you can see where it needs to go. But it was a great training ground. And, you know, some of the people I worked with at NPR Music were the best in the business. Bob Boylan, Robin Hilton, Stephen Thompson. Some really great voices that when you turn it on, you recognize them. How did you, like, first get your start working in it? You know, I while I was in, I came to New York for grad school, and, you know, the grad school I picked was great, but I didn't feel like I was challenged. My undergrad, I thought, the, the work I did in undergrad, I thought was much more challenging. So I was doing well with my graduate studies, but I wasn't really kind of just like, oh, this is tougher than anything I've done. I did almost, I did fellowship level work while I was in undergrad. I won a political science fellowship. And they, like, when I got there, like, they, they identify you pretty quickly and, like, the people they want to put on a fast track. So I was doing pretty high level work from my probably end of sophomore year and, like, on in preparation for this fellowship and like my college at the time had never had somebody not win it. Like, I think I was the last (laughs) person (laughs) to win it. So, um, and so I got to New York city, I'm in grad school, I'm studying public policy. And to be honest, I was kind of like, I was a little bored. And I was like, I'm in New York city where you can go out seven nights a week. And there's also shows every night of the people that never came to the Midwest that I would love to see, including some of the people that we're going to talk about today. It's just like, I felt like a kid in a candy store. And then I ended up getting a internship at this kind of, remember Web 2.0, like when the web <laughs> kind of discovered that you could do cultural stuff other than like looking up things and using Jeeves. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <and> so, <laughs> oh my God, Jeeves. Jeeves, oh I miss Jeeves every day. <laughs> um, so I worked with this Web 2.0 company called Platform.net that did a lot of cultural things and, you know, they worked and brought like Vice to America. Um, we worked with like Triple Five Soul and Trace and and um, I ended up just loving it. And I had an editor there that was like, I feel like you could do this. And this could be your life. If you wanted to be a music journalist, you could do this. And something in me clicked. And the way that he just believed in me and kind of pushed me along, I was kind of like, he's right. I, I think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that was it. Like, you know, when you're an intern in the music industry, you're an intern for a long while, typically. It's not like you usually jump right into your job. It's very rare, and especially back in the <clears throat> 90s. Um, it really <laughs> didn't happen that way. Late 90s, I would say. Yeah, I was an intern for a long time, and then I became a news editor there, and I was just writing every day. Like, he would just have me writing pieces about music news and 
review this album and talk to this person. And it was the best training ground I could have had. That's awesome. That's amazing. That sounds like a dream. <laughs> it was great. And I met some of the best people that I'm still friends with in New York City. I mean, 22 years later, folks that are just amazing that have gone on and started companies or have created like books and images and things that you see. And it, it, it was just such a good training ground to know about like what makes the music industry run, what makes the cultural like industry, because that's a whole nother thing. Like before it wasn't as big, but now with like, that was the very impetus. And now it's just cultures involved in everything. There are more music journalists that have stopped writing music that mm -hmm. are going into culture. They're just mm -hmm. like, it's easier to be a culture writer these days. I cherish every moment of that. It was crazy. We worked in this big old loft on the edge of the water in Williamsburg when it was not Williamsburg, <laughs> when it was still just a like a trucker, truck stop, like truck stop hookers, police oh, yeah. like beeping you and being like, what are you doing in this area of town? And um, it was just, it was wild um, to be in a, in a loft every day with probably like 16 other people just making great music content every day. That's amazing. What were some of the venues you went to when you first got to New York and started to explore? Do you remember? And are any of them still around? Probably not. Well, maybe Irving Plaza, a couple Oof. others. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Irving Plaza, Webster Hall. The Knitting Factory has moved, but I of used course. to go to the old Knitting Factory all the time. That was the place, remember, they brought a lot of the hip-hop artists that ended yeah. up becoming, like, huge. Like, I mm -hmm. saw the very first clip show there. Oh, um, wow. I saw Digable Planets there. I mean, just nice. crazy folks at um, Knitting Factory where you're just kind of like begging your friends to come with you. I remember going to see clips and I was just like, yo, it's this group that Pharrell is producing and they're supposed to be really great. And you've heard that song grinding and a few people had heard it and they're like, eh, I'm not going to go all the way to like the Knitting Factory <laughs> downtown to like hear that. And like, I remember being in that room, probably one of a hundred people, maybe, yeah. for their very first show. I'm just like, there we go. I'm trying to think, you know, a place I just remembered recently, Centrofly. Remember Centrofly, the, the nightclub? Yeah. That, very um, vaguely. That, yes. That the, <laughs> the sunken DJ booth in the middle of the floor, and you like danced around that. It was either a DJ booth or a bar, Centrofly, and it was so, like, they had like, some crazy sound system so every time you left your ears were ringing i feel like i turned oh. away from central <laughs> yeah it was like you had to after a while but i saw some amazing shows there like i saw like ronnie size and goldie and some oh, wow. just amazing like drum and bass like they did a lot of drum and bass stuff a lot of british stuff came through there i'm trying to think of what that hip-hop club in the 20s was i saw wu-tang there which was one of the wildest shows I've ever seen where it's literally like 55 people on stage and they gave everyone a mic, which I was like, who made this executive decision and made that person be fired? <laughs> everyone does not need a mic on this stage. <laughs> but yeah, uh, New York, yeah, it, it, it bums me out that so many of those venues are gone and that we're seeing this happen again, that venues are disappearing mm -hmm. right now through this isolation and pandemic moment. It's so sad. It's yeah. like this whole pandemic situation has put so much clarity and so many faults, you know, with our society that like, and that just adds to it because nobody like appreciates culture and art I know. as much as they should. 
in a valuable sort of way. Like you're always like barely scraping by and that's yep. why bands break up because they can't really earn enough to like actually make a living. And then, you know, when it's gone, you know, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to be streaming? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like, you know, hopefully they get some kind of federal aid or something because some, I mean, yeah. we're not going to be out of this situation anytime soon. Yeah, something has to happen because I, I think you're 100% right that you lose a little bit of creativity each generation. Something like that happens. Like, we might have missed, and don't laugh at me, we might have missed our Beatles or, like, we might have missed some band <laughs> that's just, like, cranking out something we would have never heard because they just didn't have the opportunity or they couldn't break even or they couldn't find a venue. It's a little, It's a little sad. Yeah. Yeah. You moved to New York in the late 90s for graduate school, then as a music journalist for a little bit, and then where did you go? After that, like, you know, I did the picking up stray jobs for, like, a while and whatnot. Then I ended up working for a guy named um, Jonathan Moore, who ended up founding a club called APT, um, which was a pretty... um, groundbreaking venue that was in the meatpacking club that you know it was a private like spot behind the door you had to like when it first opened in its uh, first iteration you had to like be invited or be on a list or make a reservation to get in I feel like I remember that <laughs> yeah and then as it you know of course you know there's always that buzz spot place and all the celebrities go And, you know, that never really waned that much at APT. It always ended up remaining that somebody crazy would come through those doors every night. But in its second wave, it became about really respecting DJ and music culture. And we had a guy named Alec DeRogerio, who was an amazing music booker and curator. And, like, now he is a music super, like, a really well-known music supervisor. He works with everybody, um... And Alec just booked amazing, amazing stuff. Um, So I was with them for four years, handling their marketing and um, working with, like, some of the most creative people ever um, to kind of get the imagery together. And we did, like, personalized, like, 12-inch calendars that we sent out all around the world. And that was amazing. That was a a pure training ground right there where you just heard – the best, some of the best DJs in the world and producers and just music lovers spinning music seven nights a week. And I mean, mm-hmm. I was there probably five or six nights a week. I usually take one day as a break <laughs> sometimes, but just consistently having some of the best people in the world playing music just in there spinning it. I mean, I saw everyone from, I mean, that was one of James Murphy's first outside residencies, um, outside of his own venue. Um, we had Stretch and Bobito. Oh gosh, we had everybody. Um, literally everybody came through there. It, it just got mm-hmm. to be mu- too much almost. And, um, it was just, and then working with people that just loved music and you would have people that would support you every night because they knew, what they didn't care what it was they would walk in there and they knew they would hear something awesome or they'd be challenged or they'd learn about some music that was new but 
um, it was just a really special time. And again, another place where I met friends that I, I still talk to to this day and people that I respect their music taste. I mean, DJ Dwayne, Dwayne Harriet, one of the best like selectors in the game, like was a DJ and also consulted and did things there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I literally could go through a list of so many people, but that was really awesome. Then after that, went to the Fader was there for a couple of years, worked on live events for them, and then was freelance for a good long time, taking on clients. Did you like freelance life? It's tough. You you have to be really driven, and you have to look for your own work. It, the thing that really <laughs> kicked me in the pants was there was a point where my mom was like, aren't you tired of not having insurance? Or like, aren't you tired <laughs> of paying an outrageous amount of money per month like not mm -hmm. to have insurance I was like that is kind of true but it was awesome I worked with amazing clients that just were at that time remember it, it was considered being a sellout if a band put their music in a video or a commercial for a yeah. brand like okay. it was a big deal yeah. and so I worked with agencies and with partners to find those new lines and broker those deals and create those partnerships in a really holistic way that it didn't feel like these people were kind of at the time selling out. It's like, mm -hmm. here's the partnership and this is how it's going to enhance what you're doing. And these people kind of have the same values. And again, there were some people that did just want the check. They're like, I don't care. Cut the check. It's a liquor company. I know it's going to be a big one. Great. But it was a really different time, not like now that it's like that's what people expect. They make albums with 26 tracks because they're expecting <laughs> that they'll release five of them as singles and then 10 of them they'll try and license for movies mm -hmm. or commercials or whatnot. It was a very different time that it was like getting those big hits from big bands. You had to like talk to them for weeks and weeks and weeks and convince them that it wouldn't ruin their image it would ruin things for other people on the label that it was worthwhile to give them the umpteenth amount of money that they were going to get for it pretty crazy days but it was fun a lot of laying down this foundation of what's going on now and then you kind of transitioned into NPR at some point that's it um, how did that just, opportunity come about it's wild like I was really still freelancing and I got an email you know every once in a while I would get a note from somebody um asking me to do some some journalistic um like like an article or a view or something like that and I would pick those up and it was fun also just to keep my chops of writing and listening and kind of keeping a critique style there was a guy I worked with who is still at NPR Music his name's Otis Hart and mm -hmm. he hit me up and was like hey what are you up to these days I was like oh still doing my freelancing partner thing and he was just like hey would you consider applying for this job at NPR and I got it and I was like there's no way that they would hire me for something like that and then kind of like sat on it for a month and he hit me back he was like did you apply to that thing and I was like no I was like there's no way and he was like no they want somebody that's gonna shake things up and do it differently they definitely want somebody that knows events knows music um, you have some journalistic uh, background, that's great, but they want somebody to come in here and do something absolutely different for their live events. They're open. Went through the process, loved everybody there. Like, that was my first, you know, now, like, you go into job interviews and you talk to, like, 10 people. That was, like, my first, like, talk to 10 people. Like, I literally talked, I think, to probably, like, five people in New York 
Then they put me on the train to go to DC headquarters, and there I I don't even know how many people I talked to. Like they, <laughs> by the end when I got back on the train at the end of the day, I was like just spinning and like shaking because I was like I think I talked to thirteen people today in like an interview, and ended up getting the job. And it was I was there for oh, cool. five years and just one of the best squads in the business. People yeah. just professional, amazing, curious, smart gregarious people I worked with every day um there were challenges but nothing was personal there it's because you knew people loved music Mm -hmm. and people were willing to fight for what they believed in and what they wanted to listen to and what they wanted to present to the listeners and the rest of the world and how can you be mad at that like people are just willing to like lay a line in the sand and argue they're like no we're gonna put this on the air we're going to like we're gonna figure it out here's how it's gonna happen best thing ever it's really awesome when you can like connect with people on a musical level because i feel like you're right like it forms like a deep bond you know if you have like this shared experience and like love for certain kinds of music you just like can't help it it's like a bond that like will last for a really long time no matter yeah. what, you know? I mean, again, it's like, I feel like I've been very lucky that I've had, um, I, and, you know, I actually talked about this with um, my work colleagues at Sonos, that it's, you know, I, I, I tend to choose where I work on feeling, if I'm going to have a feeling of, that it's to my beliefs my value systems, the people I would want to be around. I know a lot of people don't get that choice, but I personally made that effort. I think when I stopped doing politics and decided to remove myself from that kind of like where you could be nameless, faceless, you're kind of doing whatever, that I wanted it to be very encompassing of like what I believe in. And, you know, with NPR, um, literally some of those people are – the best people I've ever met in my life. I mean, I just had to move out of my apartment for three weeks because of some construction. One of my old NPR colleagues was like, you can stay in my apartment. Like Aww. he like literally like went to DC and like, stay, it was like, you can stay here. And like, I mean, who does that for people? But that's like, because I was on the road with this person traveling to festivals and recording mm-hmm. things and living a shared experience with them for five years. Like you start to know people and, you, you, and when you just have that common bond of respect and joy, and it, it makes it very easy to go to work and love it every day. Definitely. Very true. You know, earlier today I was going through some of your archives, NPR archives, Uh-oh. and I stumbled upon a clip from the first time churches were in the States and they played South By, and your name is on the production of, of that video, uh, of that live video. And I just remember, like, at the time I was thinking, okay, that band is about to break really big. Mm-hmm. You could just tell. Like, there was just the pop element, and it was catchy, and... Um, I don't know. It was a nice memory because I feel like I was I was literally at the same show that that yeah. was uh, being featured. It's amazing that South by Southwest was great. That might have been like either my first or my second. Um, I remember that show because I think they only had that one single out, and then you mm-hmm. heard that they were like this Scottish band, and they played like at a weird time. Like it was really kind of early, but you know we sat up there all day. I think we recorded like most of the acts that performed on that stage. And as soon as they hit, you knew you were seeing something special. Like, 
her voice sounded just mm-hmm. like the record, which for me is a huge thing. I always comment on that to people. I'm like, oh, their voice. Like if I'm in a live show, I'm like, oh, they sound just like the record. She sounded just like the record. They sounded amazing. The energy was high. Everybody that was there was kind of just really into it. And they also, you could tell, won over fans there. It was really great to have that opportunity and be, that was the first time I had been on like kind of digital and video production end of those things Mm -hmm. that team at npr is unbelievable like i think that translating it from the traditional terrestrial radio and then also giving it life online masters and um they figured out a way to make both feel very intimate and that's what i love about the concert videos that even have continued on and also with like the tiny desks and some of the other like programs that they have um on music it feels intimate and it makes you feel like, hey, we're giving you this opportunity as a music fan to really see this and really see this performance and really experience it. That's at least what I wanted because I know that, you know, grow, growing up in the Midwest, it bummed me out that I would open up a magazine and see like tour dates for a band that I love and they didn't even come anywhere near me in Missouri. Like they weren't coming to Kansas City. Maybe they'd go to St. Louis. They definitely go to Chicago, probably. Maybe they'd go to Dallas. My parents aren't letting me drive eight hours anywhere. So I never got to see a lot of the bands I wanted. So for me, getting that stuff out to somebody who had a chance to look at it on a laptop or they beamed it to their TV, that might be their opportunity to see a band that they love or discover something. So I always felt really proud of those videos that came out. What are some of your, like... um memories of the aughts in the New York scene then because I feel like it was such a moment in time yeah it was wild (laughs) um (laughs) it it went from so many different scenes clashing literally at once I mean there was electro clash and then (laughs) there were the beginning of like that pitchfork indie like and um, there was also like the nascent kind of like skater parties like that always like mixed punk and hip hop and it was just so much of a a blender of of culture like that's one of the things I do miss the most about um, a lot of cultural settings in New York City that it was very much like the 70s and when you hear people talk about the 70s I never thought I'd be one of those people like I miss this and why can't we do this but I'm gonna go there now but um Mm -hmm. I miss that moment of where people from all different types of scenes could get together listen to everything kind of mishmash together and you hung out you knew people like I knew skaters I knew like ravers I knew like techno kids um I, I knew rockers and i knew music journalists and i knew artists we would all be at the same party the dj would just play across all genres that was one of those things i loved and the parties could be anywhere like you could see a live band play at a vacant literally at a vacant chinese restaurant down in wall street mm-hmm. or you could go yeah. <laughs> uptown to the 50s and like go into a midtown office building that they cleared obviously cleared the desk out of and you're you're there that was like really the the very brave i mean i had already been working in williamsburg but for a lot of people that was their first time ever going to williamsburg to go see shows or going to bushwick i mean i remember the first time i went to bushwick my friend was like all right you're gonna take the train here 
And as soon as you get out, run to my apartment. I was like, run? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and she was not joking. I literally got to the top of the stairs. And it was like every stereotypical New York movie that there were like men warming themselves over the barrel. There was like a shotgun car that had been burned out. And like I hit the top of the stairs. I was like, oh, she wasn't joking. Literally trucked <laughs> to her apartment. That was the first time that like folks were braving it out there to like see bands. Um, and there was uh, just an energy of young creative people that everybody had like one or two jobs or there were a few people that were lucky that maybe had a desk job or like they were a writer or they worked at an agency but everybody was scrappy but they also did their other thing it's like you know everybody I know that was like in a band was a bartender somewhere they all were bartenders yeah. like <laughs> or they all were bouncers somewhere or they they did something else but that's how they lived their dream that they were able mm -hmm. to do that um and it was just, it felt exciting. It felt like something was really happening. Like you kept hearing like and seeing Brooklyn written up in things. And you kept seeing about like, here are these bands that are now out there touring and like going to festivals and they're like people in London are hearing about it. And you're just like, whoa, these are like friends of mine. This is the guy who made me my drink last night. That like <laughs> this band's like blowing up. Um, I just remember that vibrant sort of that, that energy and it would just run through you that you just never knew what could happen any night that you went out that could be the night that that person gets written up and they just mm -hmm. become a star and that's it and people were hungry to like for new music you know like to 100%. discover you know and like you would yeah you're right dude you would go anywhere <laughs> like, and, yeah. and you'd um, be like in a loft you know wherever i don't know like it just didn't I, matter yeah, and I think I still listen that way, that um, I listen with that kind of hungry spirit that it's like, I want to know what you played, what, and like some of those bands you could, like, they would then play like a DJ set afterwards, and they play like the references that you'd hear in their music. Like, people just weren't afraid of like going out, learning about new music. You didn't have to know everything about it where you like, go to Pitchfork first, and then you go to COS and read about it, and then, oh, I'm going to look and see what my friend said on Twitter. It's like, no, you just kind of like, I'm like, oh, I kind of like that single. All right, I'll, it's like the show's like $3. Let me just bounce out and see what it's like. You did it, and I mean, there was, you know, everything was fueled by, like, it was cheap drinks back then before mm -hmm. bottle service culture really hit, and um, it was easy to go out and you know the train wasn't the train was fine like you got around like cabs weren't super expensive especially if it's like you and like four of your friends pile in I mean I had a car so I literally became a taxi for like oh wow <laughs> yeah I had midwestern parents were like you're not moving to New York without a car they're like you're going to have a car and so um, nice. I literally I mean there were nights where I'd have seven friends piled in my car we're just driving around <laughs> to venues whatever if you could just get there it's good odds you're gonna get in like I think they wanted mm -hmm. people to come and show up and have a good time and it just was wild. Everybody had a spirit where it was friendly and it was cool. You probably were just going to get drunk and wasted. And then you like still went to work the next day. It's Somehow. like, it sucks. Like you went to bed at, <laughs> like you went to bed at three and you still got up at like eight 30 to make it there by nine. Somehow, <laughs> somehow, but you did it. 
Exactly. No, I mean, that was my life for many years from like, I don't even know, oh, three to 09 or something, you know? Yeah. It's amazing when I think about it. I was like, how did I go out seven nights a week or six nights a week? Like, if I go out once, I'm kind of like, ooh, I need the rest of the week to recover. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember like plotting out the calendar and it was like, okay, on Monday, I'm at Bowery for this show. And on Tuesday night, the early show at Mercury and then the late show is at Glasslands and like, if, looking back at some of the schedules I kept, it was like I would see 30, 40, 50 shows a month. And not it wasn't every single night, but it was a good 22, 23 nights out yeah. of the month, you know? Yeah, it's Crazy. unbelievable. Like, I, I still, like now, like I, even I, I keep up my live show. I was actually talking about this with a work colleague that um I still, before, I mean, obviously the pandemic, I was still seeing probably two to three shows a week solidly. And good for you, you. Know, at one point, I know it, it took a lot, but it's still like it's always good to just kind of go out and see if you can. And um, it was so funny, like you know, at the the top of this year, I was like hanging out with this guy, and he was like, "Oh, I've only been to three live shows ever," and it literally floored me. I was like, wow. "Ever?" I was like, and granted, they were all good, but I just had never thought about that. I asked a friend, I was like, is this a red flag? And she's like, stop being a music snob. She was like, that goes to shows like that. But I was like, I literally just, it didn't even comprehend, but that's how we did it. It's like you always just went and checked out a show. It was that easy. Yeah, that's something that you both have talked about like kind of the, the discovery is just very different now and I also feel like the passion that the three of us have and so many others it's a different kind of thing now you know mm-hmm. and uh, I can't really define it yeah like I don't understand how you could go to a concert and then not become like addicted to like going to see live shows you know it's such a different experience than just like listening to it you know it's so visceral know. you know so it's just like uh, maybe that would be a red flag <laughs> See, you're just like me. I was like, I was like, this is rather odd. It literally, when he told me that, it affected me for like the rest of the night, where I just kept it in the back of my head. Then called my friend the next day, and she was like, "Let that go." She's like, "Let it go. It's not a big deal." I was like, I was like, but three ever? Because he was like, "How many have you ever seen?" I was like, "I've probably seen three this week already." But, you know, the great thing was he was down, like, I took him to, like, some shows with me, and he really enjoyed that. And so I feel like I've opened, I opened new gates. But, yeah, maybe we had just much more of an adventurous spirit, and that's what we had to do. I mean, again, Pitchfork wasn't on, or Pitchfork was there, but, I mean, I think it was so indie heavy. But I think I could agree that we all probably went to a lot of like multi-genre shows and yeah. across the board so yeah who knows well now you're at sonos yes and... <laughs> <laughs> um and i know you guys just launched uh sonos radio and i Ooh. know that was a big project uh, that you were involved in and it was really impressive when i saw like you had like david byrne curate some stuff and tom york and Brittany howard like what was that like? <laughs> you know what? I, there's no way I can um, take even, like, uh, like there's a huge team around this. Like, I can't take any all or in all of that credit. There's an extraordinary team. And people just worked really, really hard. And, like, the one great thing is that, you know, 
Sonos is a company full of music lovers. Like, not even joking. It's like there is a portion of your interview where, like, you talk about like what you're listening to and why it's important and like your first day of work like you make a mixtape for like your department and like it's bananas um (laughs) and I've been lucky that I've always been in the like the creative end of the company not so much the tech or the product or the product end like the physical product so I've always been working on like how do we create that like experience outside the home and you know the folks we work with like encompass so many teams and then there I got this like kind of weird email like I would say I guess I was three years in being like hey would you be interested in like coming with this crew and we're gonna go um Santa or Santa Barbara is where Sonos is based we're gonna go to Santa Barbara and like kind of meet all at one and talk about a potential project and it ended up being Sonos Radio. It was absolutely like stealthy mm-hmm. and secret. We're in a house, and we came up with probably half of the stations that are on there that week. Um, yeah. That we just wow. sat down and brainstormed, did power, like kind of like okay, what would be on the station, and like what would be hits, would be the medium things, would be the back of the wall, and it just grew from there. That we just started thinking about like what would we curate and what would um what would this sound like and I felt really lucky that they were like hey would you want to curate and manage um Sonos's own station sound system and I was like of course and it was hard because it's like you know I love doing like the live events for the company and I got to travel the world and the team I was on was unbelievable but um that was that's basically I feel like what I was born and bred to do of everything that I do I love making playlists and I mean obviously music junkie and then just starting to dive into just that of like who would be those dream people that you want the um our global head of music Brian Beck and a guy named Joe Dawson and um our content lead um Dimitri like everybody just threw in so much of like here are the people we'd want to work with can we make this happen and like I would say like 85 percent of them were like yeah this is totally can like we wow. can to I mean Tom York totally was down to do it it's like that we gave him complete creative free freedom was like there it is David Byrne Brittany Howard same thing I mean I, I, I'm in the process right now of working on a season two and we're kind awesome. of going through that whole magic now and I let me tell you some of the people that I've been on calls with were like wow I would have never thought anybody would have asked me to do this and I'm like do you know who you are and like do you know that like (laughs) we would totally die to work with you like there's one artist that I literally was like the inner like my inner 13 year old had to push it down I was just like do not act up on this phone call I was like be be good be cool like just like get it like make them think that you're not a crazy like stalker fan and you just have to (laughs) make this happen I was like but it, it's just joyful. And, you know, to find out that your favorite music artists love music as much, um, that they've had so much fun putting these playlists together. We keep hearing back that they're like, I didn't know how much fun that was going to be to go through, like, my music and put it together. They're like, I haven't done that in a long time. Some of these people have not done that in years. All they do is just crank out music. They don't get to go back and, like, reference, like, you know, I love this song or hey, this new artist is really interesting to me. Like, let's put this in the mix. To yeah. give people that platform and then also share it with our 
owners and listeners that are out there, I think it's the best of both worlds. Should we uh, should we have repeat? Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Stoked. yeah, I'm really excited for these two releases. Um, the first one we're going to talk about is uh, Bjork's sophomore album, Post. Saida, you want to start us off with any memories? You know, debut was huge for me. Of course. Definitely still in college or easing towards college. And she just seemed like, I was just like, wow, this lady's just going for it. And so debut was just completely unlike anything I've ever heard in my life. Post, for me, is a very emotional album because it was, I was in a relationship in college that I felt like some of the things she was talking about were dead on. And also, it just seems like such a brave, ferocious album. Yeah, it's a pretty special one for me. I didn't really uh, go see her live when these albums came out um but you know i'm the same like debut was like huge for me and like because i only really experienced her as like you know sugar cubes so it's like it was just like a different vibe and um so i just fell in love with her and, and with debut and then when this came out there were so many good tracks too though like it was also very good and listening back to it I just like made me fall in love with it all over again like because I just haven't listened to this album in a while and I did go to see her at United Palace she was I think she was promoting Volta back then but she played a lot of tracks from Post and Mm -hmm. I remember pretty vividly when she played Army of Me and everyone just like freaked out but I guess like I the year before, I guess it was the year before, was it 2006? The Sugar Cubes reunited, and I went to see them in Reykjavik. Oh. So, like, those were the two times that I've seen Bjork in my life. Wow. Um, and uh, I was lucky because I was dating this guy who worked at Filter Magazine at the time, and they sent us to cover it. Oh, <laughs> lucky. Yeah, so I was very lucky. My first, like, like international trip, and... Um, also seeing sugar games at the same time Amazing. yeah that was uh my bjork memory but i don't know listening back i really liked hyper ballad that seemed to really stand out to me yeah i was like reading about this song and that it's like a song for like uh it's like a romance song so it's like you go out and you be terrible to other people so that you can come back and like be nice to the one you love which i think is so weird at least for me like i was like okay it's very bjork it seems pretty in line of yeah. like yes I just love the way she thinks. She's so weird. I love it. <laughs> Matt, did you have memories? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think this album is kind of timeless, and I feel like it's kind of romantic and kind of whimsical. It's not my favorite Bjork album. My favorite Bjork album is the one that follows this, actually, which I never knew if it's pronounced homogenic or homogenic. I don't know, but um, I don't say it out loud too much, but that's my that's my <laughs> favorite Bjork record. But... um. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Bjork a few times through the years. Uh, the first time I saw her was in Coney Island in 2003. 
and Sigarosa opened. It was oh. amazing. Um, wow. And weirdly, Sigarosa, the, the time slot they were given, it was still daylight out, which was very bizarre. Wow. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> Bjork was, of course, amazing. And that night, she actually did a bunch of songs from Homogenic. Uh, but the encore was Isabel, which tears at me. I love that song so much. Um, and also, um, I know the last song of the night was Human Behavior, but... Oh, yeah, she also performed You've Been Flirting Again, but the Icelandic version, which uh, I thought was kind of special. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. But, yeah, over the years I've seen her at uh, United Palace. I think I was at the same show as Jin. I've seen her at MSG, which was a uh, – it was weird to see Bjork yeah. in, like, a huge stadium. Mm. Um, and then when she toured the um, the Volnacure album, I saw her at Carnegie Hall and at King's Theater. Wow. And both of those shows were uh, – I really can't put into words. I mean, that was the album where she was going through the, of course, the big breakup with Matthew Barney. And mm -hmm. it was so raw and like so emotional and like you couldn't help, but just kind of your jaw was on the ground the whole time. You know, I got to see her on this tour on the post tour. Uh -huh. Actually. In, I'm uh, very jealous. <laughs> it was oh, wow. nuts. And get ready. Guess who her, who her opener was. Apex twin. Oh. oh my god! <laughs> what? <laughs> Which was nuts. Like he did wow. a DJ set that turned into kind of like you know his DJ sets are kind of performances anyway. At least the yeah. old ones were. So he was, it like the it kind of like the light went up on the stage and there was kind of like this little setup, and there was like a tree on stage, and then <laughs> all of a sudden these arms come out of the tree. <laughs> And, like, the tree just, like, starts playing, <laughs> like, music on, like, this, like, accordion slash machine. And then the dancing bears came out. And it was just, like, what is going on? That was my first time seeing Apex Twin, too. That whole era where I was just, like, these folks are unbeatable. Like, this music is just killing it. Yeah, that, that album meant a lot um, to me. Because mm -hmm. to actually see her singing those songs and... Yeah, that that was a lot of show, and then I yeah I've gotten to see her quite a few times over the years, and she's just a dynamic performer live. Like even if like some of, I have to say that you know I feel like I've not bonded as strongly with some of her latest recordings, but still even seeing her perform, there's just something about her live that you just have to experience that she does like you mentioned very emotional. She just brings something to it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she's like a true artist. She's so creative. She's so her own vision <laughs> that like, I, even down, you know, like people always comment on her fashion sense and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And it's just like, she just has her own perspective. And you just like have, you can't help but respect it. And like, yeah. doesn't really matter what she's singing. <laughs> you don't even have to know what the Icelandic stuff mean, parts mean, or anything. It just she evokes like so much emotion, and it's beautiful. I do feel like that period, she was probably one of the most creative spirits working, like in creative. I think she was like one of the greatest working artists back of that time. Like if you think about the run of tracks that she had for so long, and then. She, like, again, and I think that Post, interestingly, was the beginning of, like, her whole fashion deal mm -hmm. where she started, like, getting creative with the clothing. I mean, everybody made a big deal that she had the jacket made of the, the envelopes and 
then the videos like she was working with everybody like everybody was scrambling to do a Bjork video back in the day I just feel like she came into her power with posts that she was just kind of like you know debut really was a debut where it's just like I'm introducing myself away from the sugar cubes I'm about to be these songs are amazing I'm about to be a force but post was it yeah Yeah, post is great you know at this time it, it only hit me recently that uh, she had written the track Bedtime Story for Madonna's Bedtime Stories album. And that came out in, like, what was it? Like sometime in 94. So just before this came out, um, this release. And um, yeah, even like kind of the mainstream acts were already kind of ducking their head in and trying to see what she was about after debut had been released, you know? Yeah. Um, I have a very random Bjork story that I've never told that I think is kind of funny um, that doesn't, directly tie into post but i think it's funny so this i actually have the day that this happened it was may 13th 2011 um i was going to the cobble hill movie theater with a friend of mine uh because we just wanted to see something stupid we wanted to see bridesmaids opening night that it like came out in the theater (laughs) um and we're on this long line and bjork is in front of us at the online i'm like why bjork wants to see bridesmaids what? what the hell <laughs> and like i couldn't i was kind of freaking out but obviously i wasn't going to approach her or try and talk to her or anything uh and i remember my friend was like what what what's going on why are you like all nervous and i'm like bjork is in front of us and she's like uh, where i'm like the one with blue hair who's right in front of us i'm like whispering her in her ear but kind of screaming and i was like if she's going to see bridesmaids because there are only two movies playing i'm like we have to like sit next to her this is i mean this is insane <laughs> she she did not go see bridesmaids she saw like the intellectual film next door yeah but. <laughs> Dang it. i was about to ask what does bjork laughing sound like <laughs> i know i was so excited and then um this didn't happen to me, but a friend of mine in high school took a plane and was randomly sitting next to her. Um, and he was, this is right around the time of uh, post probably when I was in high school. Mm. And um, he was convinced it was her, but at the same time he was like, why? It's so random. Why would I be sitting next to Bjork on this flight from New York to California? And I guess about halfway through he, he had to ask her and he's like, excuse me, you're Bjork, right? And she goes, sometimes. That's and amazing. that was that was that that was the whole conversation. <laughs> that is amazing. You take that for what it is. You're just like, okay, <laughs> exactly. But anyway, going back to repeat skip, I would probably repeat um, Isabel or Hyper Ballad or even Enjoy, which I think they're all very different from one another. And if I were to skip one, and I were forced to, I would probably skip You've Been Flirting Again. Yeah, I would skip that one too. She was dating Tricky on when on this album and he was like a big collaborator on it and produced some stuff yeah that you've been flirting again i think it's like interesting that she's like talking about you know how she how her flirting is and then like i can't like you know like trying to picture bjork laugh i can't like picture how she flirts (laughs) (laughs) you know like what what does that look like i don't know (laughs) and then then i started to think like how is she flirting with Tricky? Like, how is she flirting with Tricky? <laughs> That's like a whole other level of things. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Headphones, too. Like, I thought it was like kind of almost like it felt like when you're at a museum and like there's headphones there and you put them on and like those are the sounds you hear. 
That's what it mm. felt like to me. Yeah. What about you, Saida? What were your like favorites and skips? Um, I think my repeats would be um, number one. My favorite song off of that album is possibly maybe. I think mm. it's literally one yeah. of the most beautiful songs ever, like that she's written. I love the modern things. I love hyper ballad, and I think that just as a cinemascope, I think that like Isabel is unbelievable. Yeah, it's mm. unbelievable. She really just, I'm telling you, that album just has so many good songs on it. Like, she could have probably, if they had existed, like, back in the day, she could have pulled a Beyonce and made a visual album off of that. Like, she Uh could have made uh something off of everything on that. Sadly, I'm probably going to get crucified for this, but (laughs) my skip would be, the first one is It's Oh So Quiet. That song wore me out. Like, I just, like, I think I burned out on it pretty quickly. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I was like, maybe I just listened to Bjork screaming in headphones or something way too much. <laughs> I was like, lady, you gotta stop. <laughs> and then I think I agree with you on the other that headphones and you've been flirting again. But um, yeah. it's tough. That album is just. Yeah, that's a tough one. Ugh. I had a bit of an easier time with our next one to pick a skip, to be honest with you. <laughs> um so just, I listen to Bjork quite regularly, but I haven't revisited this Nine Inch Nails album in quite some time. Um, the Downward Spiral from 1994, which was, I would say it was their breakthrough, but they kind of broke through before that as well. But mm-hmm. I guess it was their breakthrough in terms of like mainstream success and, and actually charting high up on the on Billboard and whatnot. Jen, what are your memories here? Mm-hmm. You know, Nine Inch Nails, yeah. Like, I think that they were like part of like, that period in time where I was like into the more kind of aggressive, like even industrial music. Um, <laughs> and cause like, you know, like back then I used to like draw all the time and I would like, you know, listen to music while I was drawing. And so a lot of times like I'll like tape something on like MTV or something and then <laughs> like pause it <laughs> and then like sketch it. And so I remember like drawing Al Jorgensen, but like <gasps> for ministry. Um yeah. but I I I was into Nine Inch Nails, but like it was you know, this album was like really tough to like revisit. I don't know that it really holds up too much in time. <laughs> like, and maybe it's just like me growing into like a, a different kind of like what I want to listen to or something. But I just, it was like too much for me. And like, I mean, it was like the words, like, I don't know. I just like couldn't gel with a lot of the tracks. It took me forever <laughs> to like get through it. I don't know if it was rough for you guys, too, but, like, I, it was rough for me. I am on the other end of the spectrum. I was a huge Night Inch Nails <laughs> fan, like, to the point where it was re- somewhat ridiculous. Like, I grew up listening to, I mean, I think as I got older, a lot more industrial, a lot more goth. Um, that was a good, sweet spot for me with a lot of bands, and then... Pretty Hate Machine came out, and for me, I was like, what? It literally exploded worlds for me. Also, surprisingly, again, Kansas City. Trent played in Kansas City a lot at a lot of goth clubs there. It's weird because he's a Midwestern too, but Kansas City, he would play a lot. Um, So he was there quite a bit, like, before Pretty Hate Machine came out. And then when it came out, it was like, 
this is like it was a weird feeling that was like he's our guy like people loved him um i saw him when i was probably 17 um i got a fake id to go see them at this goth club like downtown like so i was a huge fan so and as i mentioned i had a pretty i had a pretty big crush on him i just thought he was i was just like i love him like that's totally like the creepy goth guy that I that I love. So <laughs> the second album for me was unbelievable that I was just like, whoa. And then again, it it was weird that they you could tell when Closer dropped and March the Pigs and like uh-huh. that they just the videos just became so huge on MTV that I was like, whoa, he's gonna become famous. Like it's uh-huh. not gonna just be like he was on Alternative Nation or 120 Minutes. Like this is like prime time play. So for me, this it's I haven't heard this album in a while. Like I've heard it live when he's performed, and also <laughs> I've seen every Nine Inch Nails tour. Like I may have not seen it, them in the same city, but every tour he's done, I've seen. Um, mm-hmm. It's just I thought about it on this last time he was here last year. I was like, wow, I've been to every tour since the first album. It's wild to hear this album again. Yeah. It's it's a pretty nuts album when you think about it very aggro very very sexual and like i I mean i think we all wanted to talk a little bit about like some of those (laughs) bits and pieces and um like i put in my notes i was like this is like pre-incel before we knew what incel was like this is a kind of (laughs) a a creepy (laughs) album that you're just like this dude is really um he is angry and he's angry at women and (laughs) angry at his life and there's a lot of stuff he needs to work out and one thing, <laughs> things he needs to work out unfortunately and it is a downward spiral yeah. um, and also i would just love just i've waited 20 plus years to ask this question who is this woman that is torturing <laughs> that he's writing right? these songs about because she deserves to have her say in all of this because with Pretty Hate Machine, she kind of, like, drove him down the bottom, and then the jump into this one was really rough. Um, like, he went from S&M to the whole deal, but, um, yeah, this was a lot about. I think this was a big breakthrough album for him, and again, I think this is very comparable that Trent was at the top of his game. At, like, um, like, he really was just, like, the man, and everybody listened to these tracks, and the videos were an event, um, it, it it's kind of it's wild. Um, listen, uh, listening to it again, like today, it was I. There were part, parts I was like, "Whoa, I didn't notice this back in mm-hmm. the day." Or it sounds different, like being in my forties and whatnot. But it's an intense album. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it goes from zero to a hundred in in a half a second. I feel mm-hmm. like right away. You know, I I do really love that it it kind of tells the story of like a madman, a sex crazed madman going, who has all sorts of issues and literally having this spiral. And for me, actually, like as, as you reach the end of the album and I know it was a big single and, but I can't not pick hurt as my repeat. I just feel like that is the perfect kind of, everything was released in that moment. And that song is so stunning. Um, and it doesn't sound like anything else on the album. So maybe it's, I'm chickening out a little bit, but, um, I don't know. I, I I think that song is kind of timeless and 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 brilliant. And to this day, it still kind of tears me up, honestly. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I guess there's a point in the. I think for me, the album is perhaps a couple songs too long. 
uh, or maybe just listening today, it was a little too long for me. Um, but I think when when the album reaches Big Man with a Gun, which is actually a shorter song on the release, I was just like, my head's going to explode. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so yeah. that would probably be my skip. You know, I wish I have had seen them live. I have never seen Nine Inch Nails live, which is which is insane. Yeah. And uh, I wish that weren't the case. Uh, and also going back to something you said, Saida, like I never, ever thought of him as sexy. But now, like the older I get and the older he gets, I don't know. I'm just like, I don't know. His like all like his short hair now and he's like mega buff. And he's like when you see him at like the Oscars or something, I'm like, damn. You know, and his fucked yeah. up nose, it's hot now. <laughs> I mean, it's so weird. Like, the the first time he, like, popped up when he was, like, mega buff, I was like, what happened? I was like, you used to be, like, that skinny, lanky guy with, like, the long hair and the fishnet, like, the fishnets and the, the docks. And, like, now you're in, like, Rick Owens and, like, you're, like, buffed out. And, and I mean, growth, I guess. Growth. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> How do, I wanted to ask, how do the live shows compare now versus when you would first see Nine Inch Nails shows? They're still pretty intense. I will say the very first ones, like when he was like coming out, it was like the the infamous Woodstock. Like that they just thrashed across the stage and like synths would get thrown and like band members would yank each other around by the hair and like guitars would be smacking people. It's intense. Like those mm-hmm. early shows... Now there's still a really intense imagery, but I still do believe that visually, sound-wise, light-wise, for sure, one of the best visual like experiences you can have in like mm-hmm. a, I mean he plays stadiums now, like in a stadium, mm-hmm. like or at he's Radio City or wherever like the larger venues, he's on that level with like a Radiohead and like just literally the visuals are just so beautiful. His lighting team and somebody told me that he shares lights with Radiohead, like that they um, share tour lights, beautiful lighting, unbelievable imagery. The setup is good. He's in it. Like they, you can tell they're in it to win it. I actually have a, a, a Trent story that um, a friend of mine was very nice to, um, for one of the tours to get us tickets and we had backstage passes and um, she was friends with him. And so she was like, Oh, let's just go say hi really quick. And okay. So again, 13 year old or no older than me like 18 19 year old me was like keep it the fuck together like do not freak out like this is her friend like be real cool here and so like I literally just like stood and clasped my arms my side and like so we got back to she was lovely really nice he literally like had just gotten off stage and he like brought like had somebody bring us back and we're in there while he's getting a b12 shot like after the show he puts everything into it he was just exhausted Mm -hmm. covered Mm -hmm. in sweat getting a b12 shot like i can't believe that he does that for an entire tour like um and you know when i was doing the research um around this album he was on tour for this album for two years can you imagine with those early shows and i did i saw the i think i saw the downward spiral show three times of that tour and it was just unbelievable like i mean marilyn manson opened and then like the Jim Rose Circus opened on one, and it's just, I mean, he he brought a show that was just unlike anybody else's back then. It was a full, freaky, creepy, dark sort of show. 
I mean, with how intense it is and, like, how much energy you'd have to exert to kind of put on that performance, like, I'm not surprised you would need, like, a P12 shot. Yeah. I have, like, um, the same kind of repeat. I mean, I, I think it's a no-brainer that Hurt is my repeat. I think I fell even more in love with it after hearing the Johnny Cash version that came out. Mm. And I found this funny quote that Trent said um, after he heard the Johnny Cash cover for the first time. He said, I pop in the video and, and wow, tears, welling, silence, goosebumps. And then he said, I felt like I just lost my girlfriend because that song isn't mine anymore. Like, wow. literally, like now it belongs to Johnny Cash. And a lot of people are mistaking it as like an original of for cash which i think wow. is kind of interesting you know that would be my repeat even though it's basic yeah i think my repeats i kind of ended up i it did a like a repeat a skip and kind of a, a weird middle ground yeah. you know my repeats are probably everybody's like you know closer just sounded like nothing i had heard before and obviously the lyrical content is something to like it's just next level, like nothing like that. It really dropped there. I remember it being such a big deal. Um, Hurt, I love. Um, and March of the Pigs was such a Midwestern, like, goth club and thrash anthem. Like, you, that was like an, a call to the dance floor, like, when that came on. People just went <laughs> nuts. Skip would probably be the same things, like Big Man with a Gun, um, I Do Not Want This. But there was a weird... You know, I feel like this album was the first time we got to hear some of those instrumental soundscapes that Trent really, like, mm -hmm. now loves to do on his, like, albums. Like, even though they may have, like, lyrics that come in every once in a while and they're kind of whatever, but Reptile and Eraser and A Warm Place are just beautiful sounding songs. Mm -hmm. Like, they just have this, like, kind of lovely instrumental like I, there's a one of them i can't remember sounds very close to some of the work he did for the facebook movie but i i don't know it's interesting but yeah it seems like for me the hits ended up being the repeats don't want to be cliche but it happened it happens to us frequently so it is what yeah. it is sometimes you know it is yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean I, the same for me big man with a gun I would skip that. You know what, though? I totally agree with you that a lot of those instrumentals were so pretty, but then I felt like they would just be ruined by, like, what he was trying to sing. <laughs> yeah, you're like, ooh. <laughs> and especially, like, those moments where it really feels like there's some kind of breathing space where, and it's not so aggressive and loud. Like, the surprising delicateness of some of the tracks, like, was, like, actually pretty interesting for me, like, just listening back on it. Mm. Like, there was so much sexuality in that, and I was, like, such a repressed, like, teenager and, like, young adult that, like, I feel yeah. like this was, like, so songs that were sexual in nature, just in general, I feel like were kind of, like, porn to me because <laughs> it was, <laughs> like, it was, like, oh, they're singing about sex. <laughs> like, Same. And, you know, like, sexy music, whatever, but, like, yeah, I mean, it was pretty dark. And for Closer, like, even though I feel like the music is, like, really good and Closer, I just, like, couldn't get over the lyrics. And also just, like, remembering the crazy video that came along with that, mm. with, like, the pig spinning. And I don't know. It was, like, super disturbing and everything. The apple in his everything. mouth. <laughs> yeah. I know. 
pretty wild. Yeah. Wait, it was a ball gag. Ball gag or apple? I don't remember. Well, it could be both. I it could have been both. As a ball gag? I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I actually appreciate the sexiness of, like, I actually think his voice is sexier when it's, like, quiet. Quiet, mm-hmm. those quiet moments than when he's, like, screaming. Um, he just has, like, this really nice tone that I think, like, if there was, like, a whole song where it was, like, just that, I'd be fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think in those first couple albums, he was very comfortable talking about sex. Like, mm-hmm. and just kind of, like, the weird nature it came along and it balanced his, these relationships he's talking about and whatnot. Listening to Closer again, I'm just like, wow, he made a, like, and maybe I was just, because I, again, same Midwestern, young, like, not super, like, knowing what's going on. Like, he really was talking about a very intense, like, like, s and kind of, mm-hmm. like, very, it's an intense relationship he's talking about there. And, like, that exchange of power. And it sounds like a very different song for when I'm, like, a teenager and you're just hearing, like, provocative words. Mm-hmm. So actually listening to what it is now, you're like, wow, that's a, that's a dynamic that's going on. You are making a... A choice in this relationship of what this sex is looking like. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he didn't seem very afraid of that. It's like you know, um, playing with a lot of like gender roles. I mean, also I think that mm. you know, once you find out that he was and still is a very big Bowie fan, that I think he took like his kind of industrial goth version of it. That they kind of dressed in like things that were traditionally mm. for women. Um, fishnets and long kind of hair and like the shaded eyes and like mm-hmm. very kind of like hugging and if you ever saw like if you watch videos like they were very affectionate on scales like a male affection but for somebody in the midwest or these guys that like that was their first nine inch sales songs they're pumping or going to the venue to see like him and robin from the band like hugging and like embracing and whatever like draped over each other it probably is very weird for like some people like whoa this is the first time they'd seen it um it's a, it's mm-hmm. a hell of a it's a hell of an album hell of a hell of a single um and the things he's putting out there pretty challenging even today for some folks mm-hmm. <laughs> i didn't actually realize that there was a sample of um night clubbing in it from iggy pop and uh, it was just like when I was like researching the album, I came across it and I was like, and I had to, I also did the same. I like went back and listened to both and I was just like, wow. Oh. I never realized that. <laughs> Me either. Yeah. And that was like wild. And then like also just like, it's so funny because like the lyrics of that song are just so like can feel so explicit. And then he seems kind of like oblivious to that somehow, because I feel like, you know, he's like, why does everyone think this is like, like a frat party anthem or like a stripper kind of anthem or something? Like, I guess that it gets played a lot in those kind of scenarios. And I'm like, you're talking about fucking. (laughs) Like, it's just like, (laughs) come on, dude. (laughs) Yeah, you're straight up saying it like... (laughs) Back then, I'm sure strippers didn't really have the songs that were straight up like, wow, yeah. my money, like a full moneymaker song. Like, I'm sure they were very appreciative. They didn't have Get Your Freak On back then. Yeah. So, like... Or WAP, Cardi B. Or WAP. <laughs> I mean. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah. in terms of just how, how quote unquote vulgar or straightforward this song was, it was kind of groundbreaking. You didn't, you never heard something on the radio that was that straightforward with a line in the chorus, you know? Um, and also said in such a way that was, he was not like we were all saying, he wasn't shy. It was very much like, it was direct. And I yeah. think that's what kind of was so um, uh, unnerving in a way. Yeah, yeah, I know. I remember driving around like with my mom. If I had like a mixtape on or I had the album, I would like turn it down or skip that song immediately. <laughs> because I was like, I don't even want to deal with it. <laughs> <one."> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I remember that they, I mean, it's it's so amazing to think about what MTV and other channels and what they did. Remember that they could only play it at a certain time of night, that video. Mm-hmm. I think they premiered it like one day during the day, all hell broke loose and then it became an evening and there was like, I think like a moment of warning to get parents to turn it or whatever. <laughs> then yeah. they would play it. And I was like, that's so crazy that we all had to wait. Like, oh, I want to see that video and you'd have to wait till nighttime to like see yeah, the, yeah. the closer video. Yeah. Oh, I remember that scene where he's like rotating and he's kind of levitating mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I mean that that music video is pretty iconic. Yeah, yeah and that's what I was just googling now to see. I want to say it was was that a was that a Floria Sigismundi who I think is. I it must be. She did no. all those. No, Ro- Mark Romanic. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I know he worked with her quite a bit. Shout out to her; she's amazing. But oh that, yeah, Mark yeah. Romanic did that. Oh. Oh, and remember that it had those where it would that obviously there are things that had to be removed. They would have that card that flash seed missing. Oh yes. Yeah. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, if you couldn't show it and it's on now, I'm like, what was it? <laughs> so wild. Yeah, it definitely left an impression on me. <laughs> yeah, all of us. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This is fantastic. I love um, getting a chance to revisit things, especially two um, albums and artists that really kind of meant a lot to me and mm-hmm. shaped a lot of what I listened to. So thank you guys so much. I'm, I'm stoked you guys are appreciating and giving music uh, its due like this. It's fun to look back. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mixtape Memories, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, 
the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.